The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Romans chapter 1. We're going to get there eventually, so if you have a Bible or an app, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to end up. But uh, I'm going to spend most of the sermon away from that and not get there till the very end. In the creation account, the crowning achievement is God creating man in his image. The imago Dei means the image of God in Latin. Since all mankind's created in the image of God, we respect all life, life in the womb, life at the end of life, and we respect all people regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, cultural background, except for Aggies and Longhorns, as we've said every single week we've said that. But the fall changed everything. What we have said week after week as I've walked over to these uh, pieces of pottery that we put up here is that this represents my life and this represents your life. When the fall happened, when Adam and Eve fell, sin entered the world, and we were shattered. The Imago Dei in man and woman was shattered, but it wasn't destroyed. And by God's grace, it's been put packed together. By God's grace, redemption has taken place. Bob shared his story at age 10. He was redeemed. He was thinking about infinity in the universe. I was thinking about Roy Rogers and baseball. So tells you where I come from. So uh, here's the reality. Uh, we, we were all shattered, but by God's grace through redemption, we're put back together. And we recognize this is the work that God does. He, he takes broken people. He takes broken people and he puts us back together, every single one of us. And so when we look at the area of sexuality today, we'll recognize that all of us are broken in some way, but God's desire is for us to live it out in a biblical way. God's desire is to live it out in a loving way. And so uh, what we recognize is that even though the image of God in man has been shattered, it's not been destroyed. The great news of the gospel is that which is shattered can be restored. And it's with that that we're going to look at God's word today. So let's pray. Father, would you take a very sensitive area. Would you guard my tongue? Would you allow me to speak truth lovingly? Father, I pray that uh, as we look at a topic of great sensitivity in our culture, even within the church, God, my desire is to represent you and your word well. So I give my thoughts to you, and I pray you'd weed anything out that's not of you. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you weren't with us back in January, we begin a series called Imago Day. If you were with us, let me remind you, in the very first sermon, I started by saying confusion abounds in our culture. On the topic of manhood and womanhood, there's a whole lot of confusion. I mean, there's a struggle. I put this in front of you. It said ABC News recently said there are 58 gender options for Facebook users, and the London Telegraph said there are 71 options that come to UK users, users in the United Kingdom. And so what we see is there's a lot of confusion out there. I mean, 58 different genders, 71 different genders, and I listed those in front of you. These are the different things that are listed. So if you were to go sign up in Facebook and choose gender options, you would have all of these to choose from. We're confused culture. I mean, there's a lot of confusion out there. The first series uh, sermon, I gave you the example of Mount Holyoke College. Mount Holyoke is one of the seven sister colleges in the Northeast. When the Ivy League schools were formed, they were for men only. So there were seven sister colleges that were formed so that women could attend university as well. 
recently, one of the things that happened there, Mount Holyoke now has 30 gender categories. So if you were to enroll or desire to enroll in Mount Holyoke, you would choose from one of 30 gender categories. And and after you made that choice, if you uh, qualified, then you would be entered. So they had a real issue recently. What happened about three years ago is is there was a man who was born with biological male parts, but he self-identified as a female. So biological parts male, self-identified as a female. So he applied to Mount Holyoke, and because that was his gender identity, he was admitted to Mount Holyoke, or she was. And so the admission took place. Here's where the problem happened, though. After year one, this guy with biological parts that self-identified as a female decided, after all, he would identify as a male. So literally, you have a rooster in the hen house is what you got. You've got a guy who now claims to be a guy who is living in a girl's college, but the problem is Mount Holyoke had decided whatever sexual preference you had when you entered, or not sexual preference, gender identity you claim when you entered, you could continue on regardless of what happened. And so lawsuits flew back and forth. Are you thoroughly confused? I am. I mean, confusion abounds in our culture. I had to get a dictionary out on my computer, pop up the dictionary to understand what most of these things meant. So recently, National Geographic comes out with a special edition about once or twice a year. And recently, this is the special edition of National Geographic. I hold it in my hand. You can buy it. Uh, Not for me. You can go to the counter and buy it. Well, I'll sell it to highest bidder maybe, but we'll see. It's a special issue called the shifting landscape of gender, gender revolution. And so you can't make out the little words in white. It identifies who they are. Uh, Basically, the guy on the left identifies himself as intersex non-binary, the next one transgender female, the next one transgender male, the next one bigender, the next one uh, bisexual, the next one androgynous, the next one male. And so uh, they have all these different categories. If you were to go, you could open it up and you would have about uh, 20 young people, 25 young people identifying each in a different way. And basically this National Geographic edition, what they're espousing is the best way to decide gender is allow your children to be exposed to everything that's there and let them make a choice. That's basically what this is teaching. So you can pick it up, you can read it, uh, whether you concur or not, that is exactly what's being taught. So that's National Geographic. All that to say we live in a culture of confusion. We live in a culture of confusion. The next thing I said in that first message is, I, I, I feel I need to set some ground rules for this study, and specifically for today. I said it the first message, but I'm going to say it again today. The church needs to be a safe place for all people who are seeking after Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you come from. The church needs to be a safe place for folks seeking after Jesus. We want to be filled with grace. Many of our TBC families are impacted by the confusion that abounds in our culture. I've looked over our audience all three hours, first hour, four couples that Bev and I know very well, some of them, some of our closest friends who have uh, sons or daughters that claim same-sex attraction and some of them living out that lifestyle. So when I speak, I know who I'm speaking to. When I speak, I know I'm speaking to folks in this room right now who have same-sex attraction. I know I'm speaking to many families who have struggles or have people in their family struggling with same-sex attraction. We have a few families here who have transgender sons and daughters. And so I recognize what I'm doing. That's why I pray that my words would be guarded and I pray that I will do this in a loving and caring way. That's my desire. That's my heart's desire as a pastor. It's to speak the truth in love. And so here's what I pray. I pray that will we be those who are filled with grace 
because we have a lot of people in our body wrestling with issues of manhood, womanhood, and issues of sexuality. So let me start with a confession. Let me start with a confession. There are times in the past when I have personally been guilty of mocking, of joking about this issue from the pulpit and certainly in my personal life. And that's just wrong. And so I start by apologizing and say, I shouldn't do that. And it's not right of me to do that. The flip side of that is we will not compromise on truth. But the truth we speak needs to be spoken with a tone of love and the position we take needs to be a posture of care. And so that's the balance I hope to achieve this morning as we look at the Word of God together, as we love those who are with us, and hopefully introduce folks to our Savior, regardless of sexuality. So there's a need to define a few terms. Two terms I want to define on the front end because there are a lot of definitions, a lot of misunderstanding out there about what we're talking about. I want you to understand carefully what we're talking about. So that there's a, the, the, the media and politics have played up two specific things. The first one is gender identification, gender identity. Gender identity, and there are a lot of definitions out there. I've researched this for weeks now. I've talked to folks in our body who struggle with same-sex attraction. I've talked to many of you who have family members, same-sex attraction. I'm just trying to go the simplest way to define these things. Gender identity is a person's perception of a particular gender which may or may not correspond with their birth. And so that's gender identity. You saw those, uh, you're born with male biological parts, but you identify as a female. The whole bathroom argument right now has to do with this, okay? People identify one way or another. And, and then there's sexual orientation or preference. It's a pattern of sexual attraction to persons of the opposite sex or gender, the same sex or gender, or to both sexes or more than one gender. It's who you're attracted to, basically. And, and we're all over the map on that. And so what I hope to do is twofold. I could just take you to the Bible and say, here are the prohibitions of what it says. And I'm going to do that eventually. But what I'd like for you to do is to think critically with me. To think critically about what our culture teaches and to think critically about how the church should respond. And then we'll look at the scriptures in detail and see what's there. So the question we've been asking week after week after week is what is the divine design? We have said there's a divine design for biblical manhood, a divine design for biblical womanhood, a divine design for those that are single. The next two weeks we'll be looking at the divine design for the family. Next week we'll look at the family shattered, then the week after the family redeemed. Uh, this 10-week series is all about the Imago Day. We've said the Imago Day is what makes us different from the animal world, the plant world, and because we're the Imago Day, we are to resemble and reflect the image of God in all that we do. That's been our thesis the whole time. And so now the question is, does God speak? Does he have a divine design for sexuality? Is there a divine design for sexuality? And the answer is yes. God addresses this and talks about it throughout the scriptures. So think critically with me for a second. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates, we see things created in pairs. Pairs. Somebody came to me after the next service and said, Pastor, do you mean the fruit hanging off a tree? P-E-A-R? No. I said P-A-I-R. Pairs. Okay. So what you have in the creation story, you have light and you have darkness. You have land and you have sea. You have night and you have day. You have male and you have female. When you think through the whole creation story, everything is in pairs because it describes the union of God with the world, with the universe, and us as men and women together, or union with one another that resembles and represents the 
the Imago Dei. God has said this in Genesis 1:27. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see is we are a pair. God has made us that way, male and female, night and day. Uh, light and darkness, land and sea, uh, all these pairs in the scripture. So it's a picture of, our, of union. It's a picture of the world and the universe coming together. And it clarifies, God further clarifies this in the area of sexuality. God speaks into this specific area. In Genesis 2.24, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago when I last preached. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so what we see all the way back in the creation story, all the way back in Genesis is the one flesh relationship that's the union of hearts and the union of bodies. Uh, The one flesh relationship, the sexual relationship in particular, is to be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Let me repeat that. God's word is clear. So the sexual union is to be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Now, even though same-sex attraction, transgender issues receive the most press, the most media, and the most political attention right now, I'm going to tell you, as a pastor in this body and in our church, we deal a hundred times more with heterosexual immorality. Men and women having sex outside of the covenant relationship of marriage. Extramarily, premarily. hundred to one. No question in my mind. And so we look at that and we recognize God's ideal on sexuality certainly will deal with same-sex attraction. I'm going to devote the end of the sermon to that. But the reality of it is the greater issue in this body, the greater struggle in this body is heterosexual sex outside of marriage, primarily extramarily. God's word is clear on that. He tells us what it's to be like. And I'm going to tell you, my heart is broken. It seems to me the ubiquitous sin of our culture and our society is sex outside of marriage. Over and over and over again. And my heart breaks. One author said, indulgence does not satisfy aroused desire, it only inflames it. Let me repeat that one more time. Indulgence does not satisfy aroused desire, it only inflames it. So if you're involved in premarital sex with that person you're dating right now, your desires aren't satisfied, they're just inflamed. If you're involved extramarily right now, your desires are not met, they're only inflamed. And so let me be real frank. In a group of people the size of TBC right now, a few thousand people showing up on a Sunday. I've done this for so long. There are young people, some of my college students, some of my singles. You slept this week with somebody you're not married to. It's sinful and it's wrong. Married people, There were dudes in here who got on their computer last night after their wives went to bed. You looked at pornography. It's just as sinful, just as wrong. There are men and women in here who are married. And you have slept with somebody in the last day, last week, last month. And it's somebody you are not married to. It's sinful and it's wrong. And we deal with that issue a thousand times more. Uh, I used to use a saying all the time. I went back and looked at my notes. I think it's been eight years since I used a saying. It's by Martin Luther. Martin Luther, and if you've been at TBC for a while, you know this quote. Martin Luther said, if your head's made out of butter, don't sit next to the fire. If your head's made out of butter, don't sit next to the fire. I see a lot of butter heads out there. I mean... <laughs> I mean, in our culture, in our world, even in our church, I mean, we just got butterheads everywhere. 
and we go sit next to the fire and we wonder why in the world are we struggling in this area? Martin Luther also said this. He said, uh, we can't keep the birds from flying overhead, but we can keep them from nesting in our hair, referring to uh, immoral, immorality and sin. And so, uh, personally, I don't have that problem, nothing to nest in my hair, but uh, you understand what he's saying. He's saying, temptation is there, flee from it, run from it, set your heart on God and the grace of God and the mercies of God and run to him. And so that's what he's saying there. He's saying, live a life of radical purity in an age of rampant impurity. Live your lives radically pure in an age of rampant impurity. That's what he's called us to. He's called me to that. He's called you to that. It doesn't matter if you're attracted to the same sex. It doesn't matter if you're attracted to other sex. We are called to live a radically pure life in Jesus. And the scriptures state from Genesis 2.24 forward that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two become one. It's a relationship between a husband and wife and only a husband and wife in a marital covenant. And so I beg you as a pastor here, I I beg you to to follow God's clear teaching on sexuality. And don't do it because Pastor Gary said so. Do it because your heart has been transformed by the grace of God. And and because a transformed heart produces changed behavior. And that changed behavior reflects the Imago Dei, the image of God in us. And the image of God in us is to radically live purely in a world of rampant impurity. Some of you not only did porn or slept with somebody that married you, some of you are living together. You're living together in sin. I want to talk to you. The Spirit of God indwells you. I'm going to beg you to quit doing it. I'm going to beg you to separate. No, we can't do that. I've got people you can go live with. Don't come to me and say, hey, Pastor, we really want to get married, but we can't afford to right now. We're saving for a wedding. I say, hooey. You get married before God. You come to me, we'll take care of that. If you're not unequally yoked, you do what's right before the living God. And I'm going to show you why in a second. I'm going to show you why uh, as we think critically through this. Here's something that, that I think. I think sexuality in marriage is about serving our spouse, not satisfying ourselves. Sexuality in marriage is about serving our spouse and not satisfying ourselves. And I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now concerning things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. The husband his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so what that scripture is teaching us in 1 Corinthians 7, that my goal, the sexuality of my life should be to please that woman who is right there, my bride. It's not about what I want. It's about serving her and pleasing her. Sexuality and marriage is about serving our spouse, not satisfying ourselves. The problem is we have screwed this up. We have messed this up. We've distorted this, and we believe it's about us. We, we believe it's about what we want, when we want, how we want it, the way we want it. And the reality of it is, if I am going to be a godly man who walks with Christ and honors my wife and honors my Savior and, and, and represents the Imago Dei before you and resembles Jesus before you, my life should be lived as 1 Corinthians 7 says, sexuality in marriage is about serving my bride, not satisfying myself. 
And I'm convinced if we as believers lived our life that way, a lot of the struggles of sexuality in our culture would be diminished. They're not going to go away, but they'd be diminished because they would see loving relationships between husbands and wives that reflect the Imago Dei, and they're going to say, what those people have, we want. And I believe the church has fallen here because we pervert the sexual thing as much as the world does. And because of that, they see no difference. And when the world sees no difference, why should they want what we have? But when you represent Jesus in the Imago Dei, by living a life of radical purity in an age of rampant impurity, you represent him to a watching world that says, I want what they've got. And so I pray, I pray. Now I battle like that, like you battle with it. I'm a sinner like you're a sinner. I have to crucify myself every day like you have to crucify yourself every day. I have to be a man who wants to please that woman sitting right there in the area of sexuality. And uh, we are to have a good, normal, pleasurable relationship in the area of sexuality. By God's grace, we do. But here's the problem. The divine design has been distorted. It's been distorted. We've got a problem because it's been messed up. I I read about, uh, here's a quote from a pastor in the Dallas area. He said, we don't have a sex problem in our culture. We have a worship problem. Because if we're worshiping properly, worshiping properly, we'd be doing what God has asked us to do. We would be living a life of obedience. Another person said, you can't wait for sex because your parents told you to or because you signed a paper in a youth group saying you'd be pure. You wait because you love Jesus. That's why you wait. You're living out the gospel. You're living it out. Now, here's a word of caution. I don't know who said it, but I agree with it. Satan will do anything he can to get us together sexually before marriage and do anything he can to keep us apart sexually after marriage. Can I get amen on that? I mean, that's Satan's ploy. He'll do anything he can to put us together sexually before marriage or outside of marriage and anything he can to keep us apart sexually in marriage. And that's a battle. It's a battle. Gary Thomas in Sacred Marriage gives a great story. He says uh, there was a husband who went to a seminar and he read where, uh, especially wives who are working full-time, it's difficult them to desire intimacy at night because they're tired. I mean, they're just tired. And, and we can all relate to that. And so he said there was a man who heard that at a seminar. He decided he'd stay, uh, stay home on a summer day, take care of their four kids and do everything his wife would typically do if he was not there. So get up, fix some breakfast. Wife went off to work. He cleaned the house. He did the laundry, fixed them lunch, uh, put the little one down for a nap in the afternoon, played with the older ones, and then he had supper ready when she walked in. Dinner was on the table, nicely set table. Uh, He told her she could go take a long bath afterwards. He'd get the kids ready for bed. They read bedtime stories together. She got in bed. He went to take a shower, and uh, she's relating this story to her co-workers the next day. And he said, he did all that for you? Yeah. Well, when he came to bed, what happened? Wink, wink. And he said, uh, and she said, God is good. He looked at me and said, babe, I'm too tired. Let's go to sleep. (laughs) Satan will do anything he can to get us together sexually before marriage and anything he can to keep us apart sexually after marriage. That's his ploy. And it gets distorted. It gets distorted. The divine design, I believe, is distorted because we don't view ourselves incorrectly. Here's where I want you to do some thinking with me. Not that you haven't been, some more thinking. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flee immorality, Paul says, 
Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the moral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with the price, therefore glorify God with your body. The reason why we live radically pure lives in an age of rampant impurity is because because Jesus has transformed our hearts and because the Spirit of a living God lives inside of you. So last night, if you hopped on that computer and looked at pornography, the Spirit of God was there with you. And this week, if you slept with somebody you're not married to, the Spirit of God was right there with you if you are a Christ follower and know Jesus as your Savior. And when you fall into, when you fall into impurity in the midst of the life that we're living out, he says, you've got to crucify your body. Don't you know your body's a temple? So we are to glorify God because at the moment of our salvation, we are not only saved from sin, we're saved to righteousness. We have righteousness imputed to us and the Spirit of God comes to live in us and therefore we can live out that which has been given to us. And so we live lives of radical purity because the Spirit of God dwells in us. And we worship Him and we love Him and we adore Him. Here's the problem. In our day and age, the the mantra is, it's my body, I can do what I want. I can have sex with who I want to. Don't tell me who I can have sex with and not. Doesn't matter gender, doesn't matter any preference. I can have it who I want with. I can have it when I want. I can have it how I want. I can have it as often as I want. And if I happen to get pregnant while I'm doing it, I can abort it because it's my body. It's my body. That's the mantra of our society. That flies in the face of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says your body is not your own. Your body belongs to the Spirit of God. And so the reasons we live radically pure lives is because this body is the spirit, has the Spirit of God dwelling within us. In fact, the verse that Bob quoted was Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? What's it say there? To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Today, Lord, you have my body. Today, Lord, you have my body. And it goes on. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The strongest sex organ you have is right here, my friends, right here. And when you renew your mind every day, you recognize I can crucify my body and live a life of purity by God's grace and God's grace alone because my mind, my heart, and my body is being transformed by him. Do we sin and stumble? Sure we do. But the reality, we're living out what's been placed in us through the spirit of God. Amen? And that way, we can, that's how we live, radical lives of purity in an age of rampant impurity. But that flies in the face of our culture that says your body is your own, do with it whatever you will. Flies in the face of our culture. You know, that's not true in other areas of spiritual life. If you're a Christ follower, you say, gosh, Gary, that's really harsh in the area of sexuality. But you came to me and says, does God speak about money? Yes, he does. Am I supposed to do whatever I want with money? No, you're not. You're supposed to follow God's command for that. In the area of emotions, I mean, God has a whole lot to say about sinful things. Look at this. Consider the members of your what? Read it with me. Consider the members of your earthly body. Here we go. That same word once again, the soma. Your body is dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. It amounts to idolatry. But now lay aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Lay all this stuff aside because now the righteousness of Christ dwells within you and you can live that out through the spirit of God. I don't have to be I don't have to walk that way. I don't have to live that way. I don't have to live a life of impurity. I don't have to live a life of immorality. I don't have to live a life of greed. I don't have to live a life of abuse and anger and all that because Christ in me is the hope of glory. Amen? That's how we live the spiritual life. That's how we do it. 
And so, you know, I could have ranted and raved up here about homosexuality. That's not the issue. The issue is a heart. In fact, I've intentionally not used that word. Have you noticed that? I've intentionally not used the word homosexuality. Nobody says, there goes Gary DeSalvo, he's a heterosexual man. They say, there's Gary DeSalvo, my heterosexual friend. See, that identifies you as something. And so I'm trying to avoid that term completely because I don't want to identify people that way. This is my friend. This is who it is. And so we'll talk about that now because um, here's the reality. The elephant in the room right now, that which receives the most media attention, political attention, that which is all over everything you read, has to do with the area of same-sex attraction, transgender relations, transgender issues. So let me tell you this. For almost 2,000 years, the church has spoken with a monolithic voice. For almost 2,000 years, the church has spoken. But today, battle lines are drawn, shots are being fired in both directions. Those who call same-sex attraction sinful and wrong are labeled as homophobes and bigoted. Those who say same-sex attraction, homosexuality, gay marriage is okay are labeled as heretics or hypocrites. The culture weighs in. We have things like the Supreme Court saying same-sex marriage is approved. But here's the real question. What does God say? What does God say? Well, God's spoken. We saw Genesis 2.24. It's caused a man to leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, the two become one. I'm going to throw up two quotes from Leviticus. I almost didn't throw them up, but I think you need to see what's in the scriptures because some people say, well, Leviticus is Old Testament law. We don't live under the law. Gary, you don't live under the law. You eat pork, you eat bacon, you eat crawfish, you eat shrimp. That was all under the law prohibited, but you do all that stuff. So that's just old stuff and we want the new stuff, but here's what the old stuff says. This is the moral aspect of the law, which we still follow. You shall not lie with the male as one lies with the female. It's an abomination. If there's a man who lies with the male as, uh, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall be put to death. The divine design has been distorted. God's word is clear, my friends. Same-sex relationship is sinful. Sinful. Now, for my young people, you grew up in a day and age where it was tolerated. It's taught to be tolerated. It's not wrong. It's just different. The word of God is pretty clear. I want you to go to Romans 1 now. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing about our good God. A lot of what Bob said actually relates to what we're talking about here. And in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, what we read is, God's wrath is unleashed against the unbelieving world, first of all, in verse 18, because man has suppressed the truth of God. Look at the end of verse 18. He suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Secondly, God's wrath is unleashed when man ignores the revelation of God, verses 19 and 20. God has made it evident. God has made himself evident. God, it's called general revelation. God has revealed himself to all of mankind. There are folks that ask, is it right that people who live in Africa who never hear the gospel uh, are condemned to a lifetime separated from God in hell? And first of all, I've been to Africa a number of times. They've heard the gospel in Africa. There are a lot of places they haven't, but Africa, especially from Sahara South, the gospel's everywhere. But uh, there are places, obviously, where it's not been heard. This addresses that issue. Thirdly, 
The wrath of God is unleashed against the unbelieving world, verse 18, because man suppresses the truth, verses 19 and 20, because man ignores the revelation of God, and verses 21 through 23, because man perverts the glory of God. Verse 21, even though they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They become futile in their speculation, and their hearts become hardened, darkened. <clears throat> so God says, hey, if you want to embrace this sin, I'm going to let you embrace it. You want to continue on a road running from me, I'm going to let you run. In fact, three times in verse 24, in verse 26, in verse 28, look at it. Three times it says God gave him over, God gave him over, God gave him over. If you're writing your Bibles, underline it. If you're taking notes on your device, just underline it. Verse 24, God gave him over. Verse 26, God gave him over. Verse 28, God gave him over. What did God give him over to? Verse 24, to the lust in their hearts to impurity. Their their bodies were dishonored among them. We're talking about heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. God says, you want it, you got it. I'm going to give you a culture that's filled with that. And I submit to you, we're in the middle of it. And then he goes on. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards other men. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their era. So he says, God gave them over the sin of heterosexual relationships and a culture that's going to be filled with that which is immoral and wrong. <clears throat> and same-sex relationships, verses 26 and 27, which is immoral and wrong. Then in 28 and following, gives a litany of things. And then in verse 2, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore you are without excuse, every one of you, be careful when you pass judgment. So let me say two things about same-sex attraction and relationships. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. But the sin gives birth, James chapter 1, when we follow after that lust, when we act upon it. And so I plead with you not to act on it. So two problems in our culture. Let me address the first problem. First problem is the church, me and you. For too long, the church has been mean, mocking, even hateful when Jesus was a friend of sinners. And we haven't been friends of sinners. We have cast the first stone. We have mocked, we have ridiculed, we have shamed people who fall in those categories of same-sex relationships. It's just wrong. My neighbor is a dear friend of mine. I love my neighbor. Uh, My neighbor uh, is just a, he lifts weights, I lift weights. He lived in New Orleans before he came to Temple. He cheers for LSU. We scream at the TV together. We both love LSU. Uh, we, we enjoy eating, and so we eat together. They come over for most holidays. I love my neighbor. My neighbor loves me. My mom is at the end stage of life right now. She's a uh, hospice. Uh, and, and so, you know, who showed up at my house yesterday loving my mom? My neighbor did. Now, let me tell you about my neighbor. He's a Muslim. I love my neighbor. He spends time at my house. We join hands around our table and pray I love my neighbor. I tease him. He comes to TBC once in a while. Last time was Christmas Eve. He knows that when he occasionally visits TBC, when he sees me, he puts his hands up so I can frisk him and prove he's not a terrorist to the rest of y'all. I I love my neighbor. I love my neighbor. But you know what? I, I don't accept the things that he believes. I, I, I don't buy into Islam. 
And so I pray for my neighbor. I love him, but I pray for him. He doesn't know Jesus. I pray he comes to know Jesus. He'd be the greatest witness we've ever seen in this community. And you know what? My neighbor prays for me. When I was first diagnosed with the disease, he stops my car and he says, hey man, I want you to know tonight the Islamic Brotherhood praying for you. Wow. I probably got folks in my church hadn't prayed for me. And I've got the Islamic community of Central Texas praying for me. Now I know the theology. I know who Allah is. I know who Muhammad is. I, it, but I love my neighbor. Why should it be different to anyone else? Outside the body of Christ. People come here seeking Jesus. They love him. I've been guilty. I'd say most of us will raise our hand and say, Guilty. And we need to love people to Jesus. I'm going to share with you at the conclusion of the story of a lady named Rosera Butterfield, how she came to faith in Christ. Second thing. So the church has a problem, but culture has a problem, and the church within culture has a problem. We have looked at the culture around us, and we've compromised. And we have said we've been afraid to call sin, sin. That's the bottom line. So there are pulpits in America today, nobody would preach a sermon like this. I want this to be loving, I want it to be caring, but I also want to say truth is truth and I can't compromise on truth. It would be unloving for me to compromise on the truth of the word and tell you you're okay when you're not. But I want you to know I love you and care for you and we'll talk this out. And I know many of you have sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, even moms and dads who embrace a same-sex relationship. My heart breaks because it's not Okay. That, that marriage, we can't do same-sex marriage here because that marriage cannot be redeemed. And so what I tell the church today is don't compromise on truth because the culture's changed. Don't do it. Tim Keller, many of you know his name. Tim Keller's a pastor. He's retiring, actually, at uh, the end of uh, this semester before summer from Redeemer, Fellow, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, if you email me, I'll be glad to forward you links to an article he wrote. Uh, I think it's seven reasons why the scriptures talk about same-sex relationship being wrong. Basically, that's the article. They take things like Romans chapter 1, those trying to understand, take things like Romans 1 where it says they exchange the natural function for the unnatural. They'll say, well, the natural function is I, I, I'm, I'm exchanging what's natural to me. It's not always natural that way. Or they'll take uh, prohib- prohibitions like Leviticus and say that's Old Testament truth, not New Testament truth. They're good exegetes who seek to support a relationship between men and men and women and women. I'll be glad to send you the link. You can read the article. So the church is compromised. And it's wrong. Same-sex relationship is wrong. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. And we're saying, so is God good? Is God some mean org in the, in the heavens who's saying don't have fun? It's just the opposite. God desires for us to have a pleasurable relationship, and the divine design needs to be restored in our marriages so the world around us can see it. Proverbs talks about the divine design. It says the joy of sex between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? No, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Proverbs chapter 5. 
if we lived before the watching world that way, there'd be fewer issues among those watching us. And so here's my prayer. You will live a life of radical purity in a culture of rampant impurity. Jen Hatmaker, many of you know who Jen Hatmaker is, especially our ladies. Jen Hatmaker wrote on her blog recently, a couple of months ago, that she now deems same-sex marriage as holy and approved by God. And she goes through a litany of reasons she does that. She and her husband, Brandon, they, uh, she speaks all over, and uh, I totally disagree with her. But the best rebuttal I've seen to that is by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. So you go ahead and Google it all up. Uh, you go to YouTube, go to Google, it's easier. Uh, type in Jen Hatmaker because she's a predominant voice among women in the evangelical church today. Response to Jen Hatmaker, it'll come up, Rosaria Butterfield. Let me tell you her story and we'll quit. Rosaria Butterfield's a brilliant woman. She's a PhD professor at uh, Syracuse University in English literature. She was a devoted and devout feminist and lesbian. Uh, Promise Keepers, a number of years ago, 1999, was coming to Syracuse University. Actually, 1998 was coming to Syracuse University. She hated Promise Keepers, a ministry of men, two men, led by men, and stood against uh, the things that she embraced. And, and so she sent a letter to the editor. She received dozens of letters after, after that, most of them from Christians, demeaning her, defaming her, uh, and she became disillusioned, except for one letter. There's a pastor who reached out to her in kindness. And she said, I had two files and I didn't know where to put this. It reject and accept. And she said, I just hung on to it and put it in the middle. And she read this guy's letter over and over. And she decided she would park outside his church. It was a small church of a couple hundred people. And I would just watch the people going in. For months, she parked in the parking lot. Sunday after Sunday, just to observe the people going in. And... and then she said, I got brave enough one Sunday to enter. She introduced herself to the pastor, told her what was going on, and he invited her, and they developed a relationship with the pastor and his family. And Rosaria Butterfield will tell you that she was loved into the kingdom of Christ and loved into that church by those people. She wrote this response to Jen Hatmaker. I'm not going to read all of it, just a couple of paragraphs. She says, if this were 1999, the year I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community that I love so much, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like bomb. It would, it would have been great comfort to her. She said, her, she said it had been amazing for me to, to, to hear from someone as radiant, knowledgeable, humble, kind, and funny as Jen saying out loud what my heart was shouting, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend too. That's what I wanted more than anything else. My emotional vertigo could find balance once again. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to, give, to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin what I considered to be a life that I loved. But the gospel invaded my heart. Jesus received my love. And my life was radically changed. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. That's a great statement. That is a great statement. And she says, I didn't swap a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. And uh, my heart breaks because there's so many that don't know. Man, you can have Jesus and everything he offers.
And then you'll live a sexually pure life because of your Savior. And Rosaria Butterfield, interesting story. God takes her out of, transforms her heart. Transform heart produces changed behavior. She's now married to a pastor, has two kids of her own, speaks all over our country about the redemption that Jesus offers. So I stand before you broken, humbled, grateful for the gospel. Because who knows where I'd be, an immoral man married to a godly woman, if it wasn't for the Spirit of God in me. And I'm so grateful for that Spirit alive in me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for heartbreak and heartache both that draws to the Savior. God, I thank you that uh, you redeemed me at a young age and you protected me in this area, but doesn't make me better than a single person in this room. I thank you that uh, my bride and I have been pure to one another. We don't take that for granted. But Father, we have been tempted. We could have fallen, but by your grace, you've kept that from happening. And we say thank you. And there are others here. There are others whose hearts are broken. There are others who are going to disagree. There are others who have spoken unkindly and mockingly towards others. Would you help us to be the Imago Dei, representing and resemble Jesus in every way in his name. Amen. Bless you.